Morning, church. Haven't you enjoyed the rain? I thought we were in Washington this week or something like that with all the rain that we've been getting. What a blessing. I, I was so excited for all the rain that we've had over the last few weeks. I wanted to look at the accumulation report of the rain. And uh, in fact, I told my wife, I, I'm interested at finding out how much rain we've actually have had. And in Michigan, you can rain, uh, measure rain in like tens of inches. You know what I mean? You get all kinds of precipitation. Washington, it would be the same way. Uh, lots of places around the country, that is the way. But I'm not even sure that we've got two inches yet this year. <clears throat> I asked my wife to look at it. She said it was 1.4 inches of rain so far this year in Buckeye. I said, is that for the month or is that for the year? And she says, as far as I can tell, it's for the year. And I thought to myself, I thought, you know, after this past week, the past couple of weeks, past three weeks, actually, we've like had Noah's flood here. You know what I mean? It's been coming down, at least for us as Arizonans, but we really haven't had a lot. But I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for you being here today. I'm thankful for another opportunity that we have to go to the Word of God. And we're going to be in our study here in the book of Ephesians on the transformational church. Last week, when we gathered together, we looked at the, even the seven unities of God and looked at the essential to effective ministry, and that was, and that is, this thing of unity. And as we, we move on, on, on the text, we see uh, in the text God's gifts to the church. If you have your Bibles, take them and look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to begin this morning in verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. Now, the human body is fascinating. It's fascinating. God, in his infinite wisdom, has fearfully and wonderfully made every one of us. Now, think about this. The human body consists of 206 bones. 206. Each of them supporting the structure of our bodies. Now, without all of our bones, we would simply be a mass of flesh, unable to perform the normal function that help us to live our lives. Now, our bones are strong, but they only consist of 15% of our overall mass. Think about that, only 15%. Now, our bones also function to produce platelets, red blood cells, white blood cells. And without our bones, not only would you not look like you, but we would not have the supply of blood needed on a regular basis, nor would we have white blood cells to fight infections that come into our body. Now, the largest organ in the human body is, anybody? The skin. The skin, accounting for 16% of our overall mass. So you got bones and skin, about 30% of you. Your bones and skin, 30%. So you say, I'm fat. No, you're just bones and skin, 30% of you, amen? <laughs> I need to lose a few more pounds. No, you don't want to lose any more skin. You need all that skin. You need all those bones that you have, all right? At 30%, you need that. Now, without our skin, our inner organs would not have protection from the elements, and everything simply wouldn't stay inside of our bodies. Now, without our skin, we would look like this. That's what we'd look like without our skin. Now, think about this. There are over 100,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. 100,000 miles. Think about this. 25,000 miles is the circumference of the earth. And there are 100,000 miles of blood vessels in your body, four times the circumference of the earth. 
Now, they're responsible for circulating nutrients, oxygenated and unoxygenated blood, white blood cells, and waste throughout the body. Now, the engine that pumps our blood is the heart, which pumps 100,000 times a day, 3 billion beats in a lifetime. Now, during the average lifetime, the heart will pump 1.5 million barrels of blood, enough to fill 200 train tanker cars. Think about that, 200 train tanker cars. Now think with me about the complexity of something like the shoulder. This is a shoulder. It looks like your shoulder, looks like my shoulder uh, uh, in uh, the basis form. Now there are three bones in the shoulder. You have the, uh, the clavicle bone, you have the uh, humerus, which is the arm bone, and you have the, uh, uh, the scapula, which is uh, the back, back part of your shoulder. Now, there are 17 muscles that cross the shoulder. You're seeing 17 muscles here, and there's two main joints. Uh, the GH joint, the ball and socket joint up here up top, and then the AC joint up here by the clavicle. Now, without our shoulders, this complex uh, organism here that God has created, we wouldn't be able to raise and lower our arms. We wouldn't be able to throw things. We wouldn't be able to carry things or pick up things. And, and basically, we would function like a bunch of Tyrannosaurus Rexes without our shoulders. Now, each part of our body is necessary. We wouldn't be us without them. And we often take things for granted until we get injured. In fact, uh, we take for granted the fact that we can walk until we can't. We take for granted the, the fact that uh, uh, we can bend down and run and lift things and move things and stand. Now, some people, even to stand up straight is a feat. They can't do it. And we often take it for granted until we can't. We take for granted the fact that we can lie flat, that we can move our neck, that we can shake our heads, that we can speak, that we can sing, that we can see, that we can hear most of us until we can't. Now, we take for granted the fact that we breathe. <clears throat> most of us aren't worrying at night whether or not our breathing's going to shut down. But our lungs, our central nervous system, our brain and our central nervous system uh, drives our lungs to, to breathe and drives our heart to pump and drives our kidneys to filter and our pancreas to do all the things that it does. Our, our heart beats, our kidneys move waste and extra fluid and control pressure and controls pH and makes red blood cells. Uh, our, our gallbladder processes fat. Our liver filters blood coming out of that digestive tract. Our brains control how we make decisions, how we feel, and, and how the rest of the organs operate. The human body is simply fascinating. It's fascinating. Now, each part of the body is necessary for optimal function. Just as the human body is fascinating, Christ's body, the church, is fascinating. In fact, the Bible uses the analogy of the church being like a human body where each part is necessary. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> it says, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. 
Now that means every believer has a part to play in their local church. And when we do, our churches can function optimally like our human bodies can function optimally. Now, every Christian ought to be a part of a local body of believers so that the body of Christ can function and can reach the world for Jesus Christ. Now, if we don't understand our place in the body of Christ and we don't function as God intended for us, our local body will never accomplish what God desires it to accomplish. Now, we need to understand that God has gifted uh, the people in the church so that they can serve the body of Christ and literally be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Now, so this morning, as we look at the text, we see, first of all, the people who are gifted. You notice in the scripture, Paul moves from the subject of all of us in verse 6. Uh, he says, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all, speaking on the subject of unity to each of us. Notice what it says, but unto every one of us is given grace, the ability to perform a task that God has called us to according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, yes, there is unity, and there should be in us as a group a church, but there also should be diversity. That's why verse 7 is there. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, God equips each of us the moment we are saved, not only with his grace, he also equips each of us with spiritual gifts, and we are to use those spiritual gifts to benefit the body of Christ. And as we use our spiritual gifts, we can preserve unity in diversity. We also grasp that the gifts were not given necessarily to benefit us, but the gifts were given to benefit the body that God has placed us in. In essence, think about this, you are God's gift to his church. You are God's gift to his church. And it's about time some of you get unwrapped. That's why it says, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, here's how Paul describes it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12. It says, but now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased them. Now, not everyone can be an eye, not everyone can be an ear, not everyone can be hands, not everyone can be feet, not everyone can be a liver, not everyone can be a pancreas, not everyone can be a heart, but, but we can all do what God has called us to do. We can all perform our part. And as we do, the body, the local body of believers can function and perform optimally. Now, as the passage moves on, we see an explanation of what it took to get these spiritual gifts to every believer. Notice verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, speaking of Jesus, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Throw a line from Psalm 68, verse 18, referring to Jesus' incarnation, his victory over sin in the grave, and his ascension. Now, when Christ ascended shortly thereafter, the Holy Spirit imparted his indwelling presence and spiritual gifts to every one of us as believers. 
It was necessary first for Christ to descend, to become incarnate on the earth, to live a sinless life, to suffer for our sins and death, and to triumphantly raise from the grave and ascend to the right hand of the Father. Now, in his triumph, Jesus has imparted to each of us spiritual gifts, and that's why we read in verse 7 again, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, these gifts are given with the expectation that Christians and churches would experience triumph as we corporately engage the world with these gifts. Now, we're not going to deal with personal spiritual gifts this morning per se, uh, as they're found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. But in our text, we're going to focus on the specific people mentioned as being gifts to the church. And if you'll notice with me in the next verse, verse 11, the specific gifts that are mentioned given to the church. It says in verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, each one of these positions has had a function in the foundation and the continuation of the body of Christ known as the church. Apostles and prophets help to lay the foundation of the church. In fact, the word apostle means sent ones. And the reason why apostles are called sent ones is they were sent out by Jesus himself. They had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, and they were sent out by Jesus himself. God allowed them to do miracles, to give signs and wonders, to authenticate their message and their ministry. Now, apostles and prophets were necessary during a time when the canon of Scripture was incomplete, when the Bible was not given to us wholly yet. Now, as you study the word prophet in the New Testament, you find that it can mean two things. Number one, a prophet is somebody that conveys what has already been revealed, a preacher. In fact, the word uh, uh, derives from the word uh, keruk, which is a word that means uh, to herald as a public crier. And another meaning for the word prophet is someone that reveals what has been unknown. Someone who tells the future. For example, Elijah in the book of 1 Kings said it wasn't going to rain for three and a half years. And you know what happened? It didn't rain for three and a half years. He said, this is going to happen. This is what God said. And it happened exactly as he said God said it would happen. Now, be careful of those who call themselves modern-day prophets. Because anyone that says they're a prophet today, they're putting themselves on the same equal authoritative plane as the Scriptures. That's the level that they're putting themselves on. And so we understand both of these offices, apostles and prophets, were necessary during an age without the completion of Scripture. And today, we understand that our authority is not in men, but our authority is in the Word of God. In fact, if you ever hear me say something that you don't see in the Word of God, you believe the Bible, don't believe me. Because here's what the Bible says of itself. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In other words, the Bible is all that we need. The Bible is sufficient for everything that we need for our faith and for our practice. Now, then we see two functioning offices in the church still in existence today. It says, and he gave some apostles 
and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, the word evangelist, we've come to understand the word describing somebody who conducts crusades, revivals, family conferences, and finds himself in a different church each and every week. But the word here has the idea of one who evangelizes. The office that we would best understand is a modern-day missionary church planner, a person that goes to someplace other than their home, preaches the gospel, disciples believers, and establishes a church or churches. That's what a modern-day evangelist is. That's what an evangelist was even in the New Testament time. Now, before the three previous offices, there is an article in the Greek. We, we see it translated as some. It says uh, uh, some apostles uh, and some prophets and some evangelists giving each office distinction. Whereas with pastors and teachers, the Bible is referring to the same office. In fact, the word pastor means a shepherd. And pastors are to shepherd a flock, the flock that God gives them to oversee. And one of the ways they shepherd the flock is they teach them. They teach them what they need to know. Now, before we move on, I think we need to note one last thing. The context bears out that each one of us is given spiritual gifts to be used in the church, but specifically there are specific gifts given to the church, and they were apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And let me say this, we are blessed to have a wonderful group of pastors here at Desert Hills. I have some of the, the finest uh, people working here on staff at Desert Hills. I have some of the finest men that I know serving together with me in the ministry. I know that uh, we would do anything for each other, and we love Jesus. We're not going to compromise truth or scripture or anything like that for each other, but we're going to back each other and love each other and encourage each other and try to direct each other and reprove each other, rebuke each other, and, and, and try to come alongside of one another. And, and, and let me say this, here in the scripture, it's nice to see pastors called a gift to the church. And let me say this, the pastors you have are a gift to this church. Now, one thing that is common in all four of these offices is teaching. Teaching. Apostles were sent to teach and establish the truth. Prophets proclaimed the truth. Evangelists shared the truth where it wasn't already present. And pastors shepherded people by conveying the truth. Now, we ought to thank the Lord that we have a church that makes it a priority to preach the truth. Uh, every one of our small group leaders and every one of our staff members spend ample time understanding the text, exegeting the text, understanding its historical and its grammatical context, organizing the thoughts, and then applying the text for the, the people today. The point of the message is the point of the text, and, and we're not waiting till Saturday night or Sunday morning to give a half effort to help God's people to understand the Word of God. We're not giving sermonettes to Christianettes uh, by a preacherette. We're not doing that. We're, we're trying to take the advice of Paul to Timothy where the Bible says, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, with, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And we're trying to do that to the best of our ability. And we see this morning not only the people who are gifted, next we see the purpose of spiritual gifts. Notice what it says in verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
Now, God gives the offices here, the gifts, so that the saints can be perfected or matured in the faith. We can describe this as Christian discipleship, helping the saints learn what they need to learn so that they can apply what they need uh, to apply to benefit themselves and to benefit others. And notice what it goes on to say, for the work of the ministry, so that the saints, those who are saved, can be involved in the work of the ministry. We don't live in medieval times where there is a division between clergy and laity, where the clergy are high and lifted up and the laity are way down here and there's this division and the clergy looks down at the laity as peons or, or vice versa. The laity looks at, at the clergy as some type of king or, or, or uh, some type of overlord. That's not how we operate here. We don't look at the office of pastor today as the pastor driving the bus and, and all the parishioners are sitting in the seats and the pastor's driving the bus and we're all on our way to heaven and the pastor's doing all the driving the people are sitting in the seats and we're just waiting to go to the sweep by and by. No. We're like a football team. We're all on the field. We all got a job to do. You got to play offense. You got to play defense. You got special teams. You got to throw the ball. You got to catch the ball. You got to make sure people can block so that the guy can get the ball off. Everybody has a job. We're not spectators. We're supposed to be in the game for the work of the ministry. And then it goes on to say this for the edifying of the body. Of Christ. Now, the first phrase, perfecting of the saints, has to do with individuals being matured. But the phrase, edifying of the body of Christ, has the idea of the church as a whole being matured. So that which is lacking in the church can be made complete. Paul then describes the necessity of this corporate maturity. And first of all, we need to mature as Christians in a church so that we can grasp what we truly have in Christ Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness. All can totally understand what Jesus has really given us. In this study in Ephesians, I've enjoyed preaching through Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul uh, uses uh, as used of God uh, in verse uh, uh, 3 of chapter 1 where he tells us we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. We can't even imagine the things that God has given to those that love him. He's adopted us into his family. He's forgiven us. He's accepted us because of the beloved He's redeemed us. He set us free. I mean, we've been given so many wonderful things. And Paul says you need to be matured so that you understand what you truly have in Christ Jesus. And then he says, secondly, we need to mature so that we don't fall for false doctrine. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with the every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, the trickery of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. How many of you realize children will believe almost anything? You believe that? I'll give you an illustration. A few years ago, my youngest and I were 
driving down the road and I was listening to my playlist on Pandora and my playlist would consist of a lot of older music, older music meaning 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so we're driving down the road in the car and then a song comes on it goes something like this. I'm not going to sing it, I'm just going to give you the words. Okay, thank you, brother. Now the day I was born, the nurses all gathered round and they gazed in wild wonder at the joy they had found. The head nurse spoke up, said, leave this one alone. She could tell right away that I was... So the song came on and I told my daughter that I wrote the song, it was about me. And knowing some people, she knew I knew some people in the music industry, she thought, well, maybe he did. <laughs> and so she went away from our encounter in the car. She's believing, my dad wrote the song, Bad to the Bone, it's about himself. I had to come to her and say, you know what? I won't say her name. <laughs> I said, I was just messing with you. Why would you do that, dad? She was a little upset with me, but children will believe anything. And Christians who have not matured are in a childlike stage and need to mature because they're prone to fall to false doctrine. You know what I've learned? When people are unsaved and they're saved people that are their friends around them, they, those saved people that are their friends around them may be concerned about the well-being of this uh, this person that needs saved, if they're from maybe a little sect of Christianity that has a, a tendency towards false doctrine, then, then converge on that person who's now newly saved and try to sway them to their latest fad and fashion. They didn't really care about them beforehand. They didn't care about uh, them enough to give them the gospel, but once they have it, now they're going to try to sway them and turn them away. And I've seen that happen time and time and time again, and why it happens is because that person is in a childlike state. That's why we need to avail ourselves to personal Bible reading and devotional time. That's why we need to attend a Bible-preaching church every week. That's why if we're not a part of a small group, we, we need to be a part of a small group. In fact, today is Sign Up Sunday. And everyone needs to sign up to be a part of a small group. And the purpose for small groups is community and discipleship, the completing of your faith. And so every one of you got one of these today. And, and if you want to get some more information from the sermon, that's what we do. We do sermon-based small groups. They gather together. They go through highlights in the sermon and maybe things that I could not expound upon. And they take some time and they spend it over an hour in prayer and fellowship. And most of it is in the Word of God in a small group. Now, not everyone who represents themselves as a Christian minister has the proper motives and doctrine. In fact, here's how Jesus put it. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs or thistles? 
Even so, every good tree that bringeth forth good fruit, uh, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not uh, forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. And so God uses these offices, evangelists and pastors and teachers, to mature Christians as individuals so that they can be involved in the work of ministry uh, so that the church itself can be whole and mature and complete. And then we see the promotion of these spiritual gifts. Notice verse 15. It says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, the phrase, speaking the truth in love, has the idea of truthing. Literally, truthing. That's how you would translate it. We are to be truthing or conveying the truth directed by love. It's not only speaking of the content of the message, it's also speaking of the character of the message. We are not only speaking of the truth, we're also speaking of living out that truth in our lives. In other words, that truth has so ingrained itself in our heads and more importantly in our hearts that it affects our behavior. Someone well wrote it this way, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds, for to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be wise and very true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. Now, when truth is married to love, the Spirit of God is free to do a wonderful work in the lives of God's people. We have the right content of the message, and we have the right context of the message, growing in Christ and allowing Him to be our head, and ultimately the church will grow. Now, God's purpose for the church is that it would become full-grown and that each of its members might contribute to the maturity of the church by becoming spiritual adults themselves with Christ as their authority in all things. Do you know, even as a Christian, only a mature Christian can beget life. When you're children, it's not really feasible to procreate. You become an adolescent, we understand it's possible, it's not what should happen. When you become an adult, marriage is taking place, children come. Adults, mature adults, can bring forth children. And it's the same for us in the spiritual sense. Only mature Christians can bring forth mature Christians. Now, without the truth, one can rightly mature. And without love, truth can become legalism. Here's how one author put it. Take love from sanctification, and the result is self-righteousness, and we become a modern-day Pharisee. Take love from the truth, and the result is bitter orthodoxy. 
Truth remains, but it's, it's proclaimed in such an unpleasant way that nobody is going to be won by it. Take love from mission and you have tribalism. In tribalism, we work to win people to our denomination or our tribe, but not to Jesus Christ. Take love from unity and you have ecclesiastical tyranny in which a church imposes human standards on everyone within it. But instead of subtracting love, you express love for God the Father, for God the Son, for the Bible, for one another, and for the world. And love for God leads to joy. And nothing is more joyful than knowing and loving Him. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ leads to holiness. As Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love for the Word of God leads to truth. And if we love the Bible, we'll read it and we'll grow in knowledge of what it contains. And a love for the world will lead to mission and evangelism. And love for others will lead to unity in the church. But oftentimes, our motivation isn't love. And God is wanting to use each of these offices, evangelists and pastor teachers, and God is wanting to use every one of us to continue to present the truth, to help the body to be whole, to receive what it's lacking, and as we do, we can ultimately impact the world. Here's what it says in verse 16. For whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now when every part of our body is doing what it's supposed to, it's incredible what our human body is capable of. But think about this. When every part of the body of the church is doing what it's supposed to, think about how incredible of an impact God can use us to make. And that's what Paul is speaking about. So as I wrap up here and get you to Cracker Barrel really early this morning, <laughs> will you understand the necessity of your part as a gift to the local church? Will you allow yourself to mature and to be involved in the work of the ministry so that the church can come to a place of maturation? Will you avail yourself to growth opportunities, Sunday morning services, small groups? And will you continue to promote unity because you love? Because you love. 